column written for business professionals on the topic of seeking approval. And this is what the writer said, approval is like a killer drug. It becomes addictive and you quickly develop a need for more. Receiving disapproval becomes a painful experience. Your entire decision-making processes are eventually taken over by your need for the approval of others. The column goes on and it offers some examples of approval seeking. See if you fit in any of these, if you've struggled with any of these. You change or soften your position because someone appears to disapprove. You pay insincere compliments. You feel upset or worried or insulted when someone disagrees with you or you attempt to coax people into paying you compliments or you get upset when they fail to do so. Any of those ring a bell, perhaps they do. Thanks to social media, seeking approval has never come with greater potential reward to it, greater temptation, in fact, to it, because the, the, the call is out there through social media that you can speak to, to many people and you can acquire their, their likes and their friendship and their following and all of these different things that, that just seem to minister to our craving for approval. Technology has magnified this approval-seeking thing, but the, the sin of it, the sin of desiring that I constantly be approved by other people has always been there. We feel like we're wired to do things in order to get applause or recognition or compliments or thank yous or at least not disapproval. Frankly, that's what makes the starting point of the gospel so fundamentally difficult for so many people. When the gospel begins with, you cannot earn God's approval. There's nothing you can do to win God over and, and get him to approve of you. You must come to him on the basis of his mercy. That immediately says, what do you mean? Well, how, I'm a sinner, I, I can't be approved. So we, we act out of role, we airbrush an image, we agree to something that we wouldn't ordinarily agree with because we want people to think more of us than who we really are. If you have your Bible, turn there or scroll there to Matthew chapter 6. We are continuing a study in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. This for Matthew's Gospel is sort of the launching point of the public ministry of Jesus Christ. This sermon that he gives that speaks about his kingdom. That's why we've called this series the King's Manifesto because it's really Jesus the King saying, for those who would be citizens of my kingdom, for those who would come to me and who would follow me, this is the kind of character I am calling you toward. This is the kind of influence in culture that I am calling you toward, that you would be salt and light within the culture. Uh, th this is the, the kind of way that you would live that would be right before your God. That whole emphasis on righteous living, you must have a righteousness that exceeds the scribes and the Pharisees, is all coming back to saying, we need a right standing before God that can only come through Jesus Christ, through trusting in Jesus Christ and believing in him, but then living out that righteousness is what Jesus is now talking about. This is what it looks like as a citizen of my kingdom to live in that right standing before the king. We know that Jesus' audience would have been largely Jewish. They had been taught from the rabbis. They had been taught the Old Testament law. They had been taught from the Old Testament prophets. And then all of the, the various rules and interpretations. Here's, here's God's law, here are the commandments, and here's how we say that you should keep these. Here's all the do's and don'ts that go with them that had been heaped on top by the religious experts of the day. And so 
As a result, we've said this already as we're going through the series, the religion of the day was largely a performance-based, external-oriented kind of religion. How do I look? How do I look to other people? How do I stack up next to my neighbor? Do I, do I look more pious, more righteous than this other person? How well do I keep the rules? How well do I participate in the sacrifices and the feasts? It was a religion that was very much works-oriented, performance-driven, because that's how people were being taught to recognize righteousness. What does a right standing before God look like? It looks like you follow the rules. You look like the right kind of person based on outward appearance. That's what the priests had been teaching people. And then along comes this relatively unknown rabbi from Galilee who takes the religion of the day and stands it on its head and essentially calls it a sham and says, no, not only are you wrong in, in some of this teaching and, and untrue, you are at minimum incomplete. You're holding out portions of God's law, but you're not actually taking them to the, the measure that God designed for them, which is to apply to our hearts. That's what Jesus says. They're, they're missing it. God is concerned not about outward appearance, but about desires and motives. Why are we doing the things that we do? And so as we're going to see today in Matthew chapter 6, Jesus is warning the, the teachers of his day that you are being hypocrites who are raising up a new generation of hypocrites by your behavior, by your model. You're just raising up more hypocrites. But also in the process, what he does is he sounds the warning to you and I about seeking man's approval over God's approval. In nearly every commentary on this section of Matthew, Matthew 6, 1 through 18, is, is taken as sort of a complete unit in, in Matthew's gospel. And, and it's that because Jesus repeats this pattern three times in verses 1 through 18. Three times he follows through on this, this framework, which begins with, when you do this particular act of worship, and he's going to use giving and praying and fasting. When you do this particular act of worship, don't be like the hypocrites who do it in an ostentatious way. They do it to be seen. And because they do it to be seen, because that's their, their primary motive, then that's their primary reward, being seen, being recognized. Instead, he says, when you worship your Father in heaven in this way, you be concerned with him. You do it for his approval. You do it to please God first and foremost, and he will reward you for that. And so then Jesus applies that to giving, praying, fasting. Look at verse one, just a moment. It says, it kind of sets the whole tone for this. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. There's where he sort of establishes that this is, if this is just about you being seen by others, you've missed it. That, that's what you're driving for is your reward, and that's what you'll get. So we're going we're gonna to look at how he applies it to these three things. We are right really in the middle of the Sermon on the Mount at this point. In fact, probably the, 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 the center, the locational center of the Sermon on the Mount is what we would call the Lord's Prayer, which falls in this section when he's developing the teaching on prayer. He gives that section called the Lord's Prayer, the prayer that we hear 
quoted in all sorts of different venues. People will recite the Lord's Prayer, and, and, and we're going to set that piece aside and just focus on his teaching leading into giving, praying, fasting. David Goffel preached next Sunday, and I'm excited that he's going to preach to you about the Lord's Prayer in that particular section. But we're going to walk through 6, 1 through 18, and at the heart of it, see how seeking man's approval, which seems to come so easy for us, is costly. And Jesus warns about it. So let me pick up in verse 2. He's, he's established the premise here in verse 1, now verse 2. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you, as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. There's the first example of this pattern, and he uses that term hypocrite. The idea in the Greek is somebody who's an actor, somebody who's playing a part, who's doing something in front of an audience for a, a, a purpose of pretending in some way before that audience. This is not hypocrisy in, in, in sort of the ordinary way that we think of hypocrisy, which is sort of I'm doing something that I really don't want to do, but I'm doing it because I have to do it or, 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 or simply for appearances. That's not exactly the case here because they didn't, they didn't give to the poor and then go home and complain and say, I can't believe I had to give to the poor. That, that, that wasn't so much the issue here. What they are doing, this kind of hypocrisy, is pretending to be more than you are in order to try to gain something from out of it. They're doing what they think is the right thing, but in the process, they're doing it for ulterior motives. They're doing it to try to get something else out of their activity of giving. One commentator says these hypocrites were people who acted a concern for the poor, whereas their real concern was to establish a reputation for piety. They want to be seen. They want to impress people. They want people to look at them and go, oh, look at, look at how generous they are. Think back again to what we learned back in chapter 5, that, that these, Jesus, as he's condemning the religious leaders, continues to condemn this idea that all that matters are external acts. All you are focused on is how it looks, that you, you do certain things that you can keep score by. What do people see? And, and in all of it, they've lost sight of the truth that God is looking on the heart at why they are doing it. For them, everything is about performance. So it's not as if they're doing these things sort of secretly railing against God. I, I, I hate that I have to give to the poor. No, they're giving to the poor because they believe that that's what they're supposed to do. But they're doing it for a different motive. It's not to please God. They're doing it because they think God wants them to do it, but they're doing it for this added benefit in their minds of people saying, wow, you are, you are super generous. Look at, what you, look at the coins you just gave to that guy. You are really something else. You must be so righteous that you would, that you would give like that. That's what they're wanting. That's the, the pat on the back that they're wanting. That's the praise from others that they're wanting. And so they are performing for recognition. Giving to the poor was a common practice. We see it throughout scripture. There's, it's, it's not forbidden, it's encouraged. In Deuteronomy 15, verse 11, God said, there will always be poor in your midst. And so he says, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. The act of giving to the poor 
is good. The act of doing so, so that other people would recognize what you're doing and praise you for doing that and thank you for doing that. If that's your motive, that's what Jesus is condemning, that their hearts are being driven, not by obeying God, not by pleasing God, but they are wanting that instant gratification that comes from somebody saying, you did good. Thank you for what you've done. And what Jesus says is, you can't have both. If this is what's driving you, this craving for another person's approval, if that's your primary motivation, but you're also saying, but I'm pretty sure I'm getting God's approval because I'm doing the right thing here. He's saying, no, those two are mutually exclusive. Once you add this part into it and say, I really want people to see what a good person I am, and so I'm going to do this so they, they praise me, then you've dismissed this side and you've not made it about God. So let's apply this to our giving, whether it's giving to the poor, whether it's giving to local church, whether it's giving to a, a mission agency to support some, some missionaries. The, the chief lesson that Jesus is seeking to communicate is that your giving is to be an act of worship. It, it is an act of declaring God. I give this to you. That's why when we have our time, when we think about giving and we talk about giving, we almost always will say that God already owns it all. We're not needing to try to impress him. We're not needing to supply something that he's lacking in some way. We're giving out of a recognition that God has already generously blessed us. He owns everything. He's provided for us. And by giving back, We're stating both our submission to him. I'm I'm giving to you from from these goods and resources because I trust that you will provide for me. And so I am giving generously. But also it's a statement of I want to honor you. I want to thank you. I I want to give in a way that that elevates, that that extends the name of God. It's worship and gratitude. In in fact, what what Jesus warns about here is even sort of a self-congratulatory attitude in giving. That's what he means when he says, don't let the right hand know what the left hand is doing. He's not saying here, be thoughtless about your giving, because that's one way of looking at that. Oh, don't let the right hand know what the left hand is doing. So that means I just sort of, I reach into my wallet and I pick out a bill and I throw it in, or I, I, you know, when I go online to give, I just close my eyes and hit the number pad and see what comes out of that. That's, that's not what he's saying when he says, don't let the right hand know what the left hand's doing. What he's, what he's speaking to is our, our propensity to congratulate ourselves, to say, look at me. Hey, God, I gave more this week than I did last week. What do you think, God? Pretty impressive, huh? I was really generous, God, really sacrificial. The the reality is scripture speaks plainly to our giving and it encourages us, in fact, teaches us to to, to give thoughtfully, to give purposefully. 2 Corinthians 9 speaks of cheerful giving that is done very intentionally. We actually pray about and think about what it is that God would have us give. He's blessed us with this abundance. We are now giving back a portion of that and we are doing so purposefully and generously and and, and that's what we are called to do. Not, Not sort of just reach into the pocket and see what comes out and toss it in the plate sort of thing. Jesus is teaching here when he says right hand, left hand, he's he's, he's speaking to that tendency to say, how about it, God? Do I get some points for that? I, I, I gave my best gift. So do I get something in return for that? 
The aim here, as, as Jesus has already taught us in chapter five, is to worship God from the heart. It is to, in our motives and our desires, declare, God, you already own this, my life, my belongings. I am giving back a portion to you here. I am trusting in your provision, and I pray that this, this would be used for your glory. He blesses that giving. He says it in 2 Corinthians 9, he says it in Malachi 3, where he's confronting Israel for their selfishness, and he says, repent, repent of these selfish attitudes, and, and give generously, and see, see what I will do, see how I will bless you for that. That, that is not sort of setting up a formula that is popular in a lot of prosperity preaching that says give to get. You know, if I, if I uh, want something, then I give, and, and that'll make sure that I get it in, in some way. God has already given us more than we can ask or imagine and will supply to us out of his bounty and knows our needs, and we can trust him for that. We give because we desire to express to him, you are God, and you own it, and I want to declare that through my, my giving. Ultimately, Jesus is challenging his audience here to be content. Not be like those who want giving to be a way in which they score points with themselves, with God, with other people. Be content in honoring God and trusting God. Give generously. In fact, I would say the flip side of this is don't, don't feel shame that you, you somehow feel like, well, that that family, that person, they probably are able to give more than I give. I don't feel like I'm able to give that much. That's, that's not the, the, the point here. Even in whatever you give, whatever you determine in your heart to give, give cheerfully, give joyfully to the Lord and give it out of worship and honor to him. All right, jump down to verse five and he, he switches now from giving to prayer. Matthew six, verse five. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they've received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words, do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Two things that Jesus is confronting here. The first one is similar to what he already said about giving, and that's that this is not for flaunting. Don't, don't use public prayer as a means of self-gratification, as a means of, hey, everybody, listen to me and, and look at me. So don't, don't use prayer for public approval. And then second, and we'll, we'll get to this one in a moment, don't pray with empty, repetitious phrases that have lost their meaning, that, that are just, you're just saying words for the sake of saying words. We, we need to note that on all three of these, he starts with when you do this. So there's no, there's no prohibition on any of these. It's the hard attitudes of the issue. It's actually encouragement. We should give pray fast, when you pray, when you fast. And so Jesus is assuming that as part of life in his kingdom, giving, prayer, and fasting are all elements of worship in Jesus's kingdom. But again, what he's condemning here is heart attitude. And, and right here he says, it's this idea of publicly praying for the sake of being seen by others. I, I want to pray in such a way that the people around just 
sort of stand there and admire my words and what's flowing from my mouth and they're just in awe of the, the, the tone and the flow and the grammar, all of that just impresses them. And he's getting at saying public prayer is not the issue, it's prayer by someone who really loves the idea of it's really quiet and everybody's listening to me. Ah, wow, that's, that's, that's what he's getting at in this. And, and, and I would suggest to you this applies broadly to any act of public ministry that we do. Praying, singing, reading, speaking, preaching. If, if our intent in that, if the pitter-patter of our heart in that is, are people impressed by what I'm doing? Are they hearing what I'm doing and, and liking what I'm doing? Do they like me? Do they approve? If that's the attitude in our heart, you may well be missing the point. Commentator D.A. Carson gives some questions, and he's talking specifically about public prayer here, just some self-examination questions. We should be able to say yes to these, and here they are, three questions. Do I pray more frequently and more fervently when alone with God than I do in public? Do I love the secret place of prayer? Just me and God quietly in prayer? Is my public praying simply the overflow of my private praying? Jesus in verse six is, is exhorting us to a robust private prayer life. Be praying, be engaging with God. Be involved in speaking to God and pleading with God and worshiping God in prayer. But that way, if, if, we, if and when we do pray in front of others, that's just the overflow of our ongoing conversation with God. That's just from a heart that's already been communing with him. He adds this other piece in verses 7 and 8, where he's confronting another sort of practice. And he says specifically when this is something that the Gentiles do. And so he's referring now to the, the, the sort of idol-worshipping religions of the day. But I, I think the fact that he's saying this in this sermon probably indicates that some of this is creeping in to, to some of the, the synagogue public prayers, to some of the Jewish praying as well. And, and his, his warning here goes back to the Gentile pagan religions that believe that if you really want something from a god, the way to get it was to badger that god was just to, to come at him with words and just, just keep saying it and keep saying it and keep repeating it over and over again and, and, and just get that deity to a point to where it finally cries uncle and, and gives you what you asked for. And Jesus is saying, don't heap up empty phrases. That's the way the ESV has it here in verse 7. Other translations say, um, don't, don't be babbling like the Gentiles. Don't, don't use meaningless repetition. It's one of those places where our English translators of the Greek are, are, are taking one Greek word and trying to explain it because it, it, it has such substance to it. It really has the idea of foolish chatter. It's a person who just runs their mouth, just talks and talks and talks and doesn't say anything that's helpful or edifying or useful. They, they're just running their mouth and Jesus says, don't, don't come before God like that. We're just repeating phrases for the sake of filling the, the dead air that exists. There are all sorts of religions that require sort of repeating mantras 
saying phrases over and over again, sort of directing prayers. Say this prayer three times. You know, re- repeat this sort of phrase and, and you'll be good with God. Listen, there, there can be heart engagement in a repetitive prayer, but he's also condemning here this, this kind of prayer that, that's no different than a, a child who's gotten in trouble and is told to stand at the board and write, I will not lie. I will not lie. I will not lie. We know, some of us who've been there and have done that know, that you might think about it on the first one or two, but about the third or fourth one in, you are not thinking, oh, I will never be dishonest again and writing it with passion and feeling. You're doing it because you've been told, write this 10 times, I will not lie. You just want to get it done and it's meaningless. Just an act of discipline. And that's what he's, that's what he's condemning is just this sort of speaking the, the saying things that, that really are not from the heart, they're, they're, they're just, I feel like if I just say this over and over and over again, God will somehow respond to it. This does not in any way mean that God forbids us from coming back to him with the same prayer request. If you are praying for God to save a loved one, a, a parent, a, a child, a, a spouse, a friend, by all means, pray and pray again. If you are pleading with God, you are in the midst of a trial and you need wisdom from God, pray and pray again. If you are dealing with a difficult person at work or school and you need grace as you encounter that person, by all means, pray and and pray the next day again. The prohibition is against prayer that just becomes rote recitation, that's just Speaking words, just God is great. I can still remember my childhood. God is great. God is good. Thank you for our food and clothes. In Jesus' name, amen. I can still rattle that one, that, that one off, which at times probably was said meaningfully, and at times it was my sort of thing that I was taught to pray. And, and if you were back from my generation, you, you knew to put some thous and thines in there every now and then, and you got a little King James, and, and that made your prayer even more good-looking, right? More attractive. And that's what he's speaking about here. His prohibition is against this sort of just reciting words because as verse 8 says, Jesus already knows what you need. We're not not praying to inform God of something that God doesn't already know. We're not praying to cajole God to do something that he really is not anxious to do. We, we are praying to bring our wills in conformity with his. That's why the, the Lord's Prayer will say, thy kingdom come, thy will be done. The, the desire is that, that by praying, I am, I am more clearly understanding your will and obeying it. I am seeing my faith enlarged. I am seeing your glory expanded. That's what I'm desiring in prayer. All right, let's read on. Verse 16. And when you fast... Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. Scriptural teaching on fasting is mostly example. There, there's some in, in Deuteronomy, there's some describing some sort of um, command level for the Jewish people. But for the most part, what we see in the Old Testament 
and then through the Gospels and Acts is fasting by way of example. It is individuals fasting. And so when you get to the book of Acts, uh, the church at Antioch is laboring over the decision to take two of their servants, two of their ministers, Paul and Barnabas, and to send them out into the world to go and proclaim the gospel. And they realize this is a, an, an important decision. It means them sacrificing from their midst. It means sending Paul and Barnabas into what is potentially dangerous, into a hostile world. And so it says there that they are praying and fasting. They are laying hands on Paul and Barnabas, but they are not doing so lightly. They are asking God for wisdom. Please, God, may this be your will and, and fasting to try to dedicate themselves. And then Paul and Barnabas carry that practice on. As they proclaim the gospel, churches are begun, and they now appoint elders. They appoint leaders in those churches. And it says again that they prayed and fasted because they understood we are leaving behind this body of believers in God. We are looking for great wisdom from you as to who to leave to, to, to shepherd this body of believers. And so when we move through the rest of the New Testament, there's no explicit instruction about fasting in the New Testament. There's no examples even of it from Romans through Revelation. And unfortunately, I, I think that sometimes tempts us to the idea that fasting's not all that important, that, that fasting's sort of low on the priority list. And yet the, the biblical examples of fasting show it to be an intentional choice to refrain from the, the routine habits of eating in order to dedicate time in prayer, in order to, to be focused and, and to set aside distraction and, and to plead with God. So often the, the, the examples in scripture are either praying for wisdom or repenting for sin or, 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 or simply worshiping God. One of the examples is in Daniel. In Jan Daniel chapter 9, Daniel has been reading the prophecy of Jeremiah, and he is moved by what he sees in that, in that prophecy, and it drives him to his knees. And it says that he prayed and fasted and confessed sin. And so he, he wanted to be focused in, in his confession of sin and in his declaring of God's greatness. And so he fasts from eating to spend this extended time in prayer. Again, Jesus assumes we will do that when you fast. This is something that we as believers, there's, there's something to this. There's something that we should be doing. There are times when we are pleading for wisdom or confessing sin. But again, what Jesus says first here is, I know, I know there's this sinful propensity as evidenced in the hypocrites to when you are fasting, use that to score some points with other people. Oh, I would love to go to lunch with you today, but I'm fasting. Oh, ooh, wow, you're fasting, yes, all day, right? We may not actually do that, but there's a little part of us that thinks, I wish other people were impressed. And that's what he's condemning. The, the person, and, and in fact, he says, apparently in the first century, they're actually going to the, the place of making themselves unkempt and disfiguring themselves so that, so that the bystander would look and go, oh, what a man of God. He looks like he's starving. Poor man, not taking food. How righteous he must be. And Jesus is saying, no, on the contrary, wash your face, clean up, look like you had a meal. 
D.A. Carson writes this, he says, some would wear glum and pained expressions on their faces, go about their business unwashed and unkempt, and sprinkle ashes on their head, all to inform peers they were fasting. What once was a sign of humiliation became a sign of self-righteous self-display. There is a place for fasting. There are times when the leaders of a local body may say, this is something even as a body that corporately we're, we're appealing to you to fast. That's what the church in Antioch did. But again, it's the heart that matters. Whose approval am I seeking? Whose praise do I want? Where do I want that pat on the back from? And Jesus says, if, if, if all you're doing it is to have somebody say, wow, you're really spiritual, then there's your reward. That's it. That's, that's the prize was that, that little pat on the back and that compliment, you're done. And what he's urging us toward is to give and pray and fast, not like the hypocrites, but like those who are dedicated in worship to God and so that if nobody sees us give, pray, and fast, it doesn't matter as long as God is seeing us, that he does and he rewards. We, we are worshiping God and, and our desire is to please him earn his approval. I I not use the word earn. I don't mean in terms of salvation. Let me be really clear here. None of this is the means for somehow getting yourself right with God. I don't want anybody to leave here this morning thinking, okay, I don't really know this Jesus, but apparently if I give, pray, and fast, then I'll be doing good things. What Jesus Christ will go on to teach is that entrance into his kingdom is solely on the basis of his grace through faith in him, turning from our sin and trusting in his death and resurrection. This is now speaking to those who believe in him, who are in his kingdom. And he's calling us to love the approval of God. I just want to dip into two more verses. Virtually every commentary on this passage takes 6, 1 through 18, and it stops there. And, and I confess to you, as, as a preacher and counselor, until I preach through this passage, I, I have used the Sermon on the Mount as sort of Proverbs, just taking little sections and applying them and, and, and sometimes pulling them flat out of their context. And, and this is such a beautifully structured sermon, and there's a purpose for what Matthew's doing. And so verse 19, I just want to read verses 19 and 20, because I, I think it's really important to understanding what comes before this. It says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. One of the things that should have jumped out at you in verses 1 through 18 is that word reward. Seven times he speaks of reward. Four times in terms of condemnation. Three of those times, he is using the word reward in a future tense. This is something that will come to you. And he's already established at the beginning in verse 1 that this is about your Father who is in heaven. And so he's already said the hypocrites give, pray, and fast for the purpose of approval. They get their reward. It happens in the moment. It is instant gratification at its best. They like me. I'm good. And that's all I really all I really wanted when it comes right down to it. But Jesus has said, when you give and pray and fast in secret before your father, he will see you and reward you. The reward will come from your father who is in heaven. Reward in verses one to 18 is different 
from the word for treasures in, in verses 19 and 20, different Greek word, but the point Jesus is making is consistent throughout. Don't be consumed with what you can get in this life. Don't be consumed with just the fleeting, vanishing, rotting away things of this world. Don't live life as if all that matters is what's here because it's all temporary. If you pursue the rewards of man, they will all go away at some point. And in fact, man is really fickle. And what he rewards you for on one day, he may curse you for on another day when he changes his mind. Instead, he's saying, live for God's approval. Live as a citizen of God's kingdom because his kingdom is eternal and the rewards that he promises are also treasures in heaven. They're treasures that are eternal. God wants to bless you and you may not see the reward necessarily in this life, but your father sees. And he longs for you to, to live for his approval, that he might show you his favor. Listen, I, I, this, this is an urgent call to everyone who identifies as a follower of Jesus Christ because it is about what drives you. What do you get up in the morning for? What is your ambition? What, what, what brings you the greatest motivation and what do you spend your days seeking? Whose approval do you want? What do you care about most? Is it God's approval or man's? But I, I want to particularly make sure that those of you who are on the younger side of the equation, those of you who are more at the front end of life than those of us who are at the back end, I want you to hear this. The world wants you to crave its approval. The world doesn't just want you to crave its approval, it demands that you give it your approval. And the world tells you it will punish you if you don't give its approval. If you start being one of those people who's different, who's difficult, who's speaking about Jesus and righteousness and sin, you're on the disapproved list. You don't get the little blue check mark. You're in trouble. And here's the thing, looking at this passage, here's the question I just want to have you just think through. What is the world offering you? For all of its craving and demanding of your approval, what is it offering in exchange? It is all fleeting. It is all temporary. It is all vanishing. It is all fickle. And what may seem rewarding today won't tomorrow. The world says youthfulness and beauty. Gotta have those things if you're gonna, if you're gonna gain a following. The Bible says beauty is fleeting. And old age is creeping up. I just need to read uh, chapter 12 of Ecclesiastes to be reminded that the aches and the pains and the hard of hearing and all of the things that go with it, they are coming like a freight train, whether I like it or not. And all the, all the supplements and all the treatments in the world aren't going to stop it from coming because it's fleeting. Our lives are like a vapor. It's here today and it's gone tomorrow. And so set your heart toward your Father in heaven. Fix your eyes on that which matters for all of eternity. Moses in, in, in Deuteronomy 28 is just trying, he's talking to the Israelites about blessing and curses. If, you, if you'll follow God and obey God, there's blessing. If you disobey and there's curse. And, and he uses some language. I just want you to hear Deuteronomy 28, verse 7. The Lord will cause your enemies 
who rise against you to be defeated before you. They shall come out against you one way and flee before you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing on you in your barns and in all that you undertake, and he will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. The Lord will establish you as a people holy to himself as he has sworn to you. Verse 12, the Lord will open to you his good treasury, the heavens, to give the rain to your land in its season and to bless all of the work of your hands, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. You see what Moses is trying to do there? He's, he's trying to describe the indescribable to Israel. He's trying to say, if, guys, if, we, if we'll follow him, if we will seek his approval, if we will strive to, to be a blessing before God, he will bless. And even if, even if we don't get all the good rain and all the good harvest, there is a certainty about God's promises that his blessings will be there. He is eternal. That's why this passage reminds us of your father who is in heaven, treasures that are in heaven. That's ultimately where we understand that God will bless his people. And Jesus in Matthew chapter six is, is saying much the same thing as Moses did in Deuteronomy 28. Don't settle for trying to tap dance your way to man's approval. Because man will stomp on you at some point, and everything that he gave you, he can take back away, and it will be worthless. A couple of weeks from now, Pastor Short's going to go through verses 19 through 24, so he's, he's going to dig much more into these. But I, I wanted to go there because I think what we've read today is what already sets us up for when Jesus says, you can't serve two masters. You're either going to love the approval and the applause of man, and if you do, you'll get it from time to time, and it may even feel fleetingly good, but you can't do that and pursue the approval of God. The two are mutually exclusive. I must pursue the pleasure of God, praying that he gives me favor with man to be able to speak his truth and be able to speak into people's lives, but knowing ultimately I, I must please him and his rewards will be eternal. That's the choice before us, to live for the recognition of man or to live for your Father in heaven who will reward you. Let's pray. Father, we, we read passages like this, and, and I know for me, I suspect for my brothers and sisters here, this is really convicting because it's, it's not real hard for me to spot this in my own heart, this craving for approval, this wanting to be liked, thanked, whatever it might be. Father, I, I pray that you would convict our hearts when we are allowing those sorts of passions to step in and lure us away from a single-minded desire to want to please you, to want to know your approval, to want to ultimately hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, we pray by your Spirit's work in us that that would, that would capture us, that would be our heart's desire, that we would long for for being able to just worship you, even, even if it's alone and it's secret and no one else sees, trusting that you delight in our worship. Father, I pray that if anybody here this morning, anybody watching online is, 
has come away at all with the idea that this, this is just another form of some kind of works salvation. If I just give more, pray more, fast more, then I will be right before God. I pray that you would, you would make it clear that that is not what this passage teaches. Jesus Christ came to give his life for sinners because we cannot give perfectly, fast perfectly, or pray perfectly. We don't do anything perfectly. We are sinners living in a fallen world. And so it is the perfect one, Jesus, who took our sin on himself and died in our place and rose again, who offers us life and forgiveness. And so I pray that you would impress on their heart to trust in Jesus, to cry out to Jesus, to find life and forgiveness in him. Father, would you please be at work in the life of this church Lord, cause us to love and exhort one another in ways that we would encourage one another toward, toward acts of worship that would be expressly meant to please you. When we are, whether we are gathered corporately, whether we are at home praying, singing, worshiping alone, draw our hearts to love you, to want to please you first and foremost. We are grateful beyond words for the life we have in Jesus Christ and the promise that, that we're only scratching the surface here, that there lies before us reward treasure in heaven that is beyond what we can even imagine, that treasure of seeing our Savior face to face. Lord, we thank you for that. We rest our hope in that. And we pray all these things in the name of our great Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.